that gets us right on track with uh, where I want to go. I, I've noticed this week that, and I've thought about it often over the years, that God has a way of... Uh, God has a way of not letting us get too comfortable too long. Uh, in the middle of writing an article, I don't know if I'll get ready for in the morning or not, but expecting the unexpected. And sometimes we get blasé to where we don't expect the unexpected, and God just knocks us off of our feet and uh, and uh, brings our feet back down to the ground. Now, I make mention of that for this reason. Uh, folks, you know, a lot of times wonder what preachers go through and what they do and uh, why it's so difficult, uh, you know, and so forth, getting their messages. But, you, you know, I'm working ahead, and I always try to do that to where I, if I know what I'm going to preach the next week, I study, get prepared. But strange things happen, and so I was laying down taking a nap, and I woke up about 15 minutes to four, and uh, for whatever whatever reason, I knew that I wanted to take a different approach in the message. So, I, I, I jump up and get in there to my desk, and I'm, I mean, I am... Uh, Writing feverishly, changing everything around on tonight's message, uh, uh, trying to get it just the way I feel like the Lord would want it to be. And uh, I, I guess I stayed at that until about uh, 15 or 20 minutes after 5, and of course we had to get ready and and, uh, and leave. And a lot of times, you know, I... I don't understand why God doesn't, why God does that. Why, you know, just, uh, sometimes you think, you know, just get it all laid out and ready to go or, and, 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 and I know some preachers, I guess, can do this, but if I'm teaching a series of messages or preaching a sermon that I preached maybe ten years ago, I, I, I cannot just go back to the notes that I've used in an old sermon notebook and take it out and stick it in my Bible and take it there and use the outline. I, I just can't do that. I, drives me crazy. I, it's got to be something that's fresh on my mind and fresh on my heart, or uh, that's the only way I know how to do it. So, all of that being said, uh, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter number 6. We're still talking tonight about the whole armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, and tonight we are at verse number 17, where Paul says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And tonight we're considering the helmet of salvation. Now this verse pictures the soldier's helmet as the saint's headgear. The soldier's helmet as the saint's headgear. In that day, the soldiers wore two different kinds of helmets, as I understand. I, I found the book many years ago. It was called uh, the, the, the Land and the Book, I believe it was, by a fellow of the name of Thompson. It was out of print for years and years. But this guy had gone to the Holy Land and had spent oh, uh, a huge amount of time traveling through there and writing about the different things that he saw. And it, it just quickly became one of my favorite books as he would describe the customs and practices of those ancient times. Well... They wore a little leather cap that had metal plates attached to it 
but the other one was one that was made out of solid cast metal and it was formed to uh, fit the head. But the type is not nearly so important as the purpose for which it served. It was naturally designed to protect the head, and no soldier would even think about going out into battle without putting on the helmet. You see, every piece of the armor was designed to protect some piece of the body, and and no area was more important than that of the head. In those days, think about this, in those days the soldiers carried a big old broadsword that's like three to four feet long. It has a long handle that enabled them to get a hold of it with two hands, so they could grip it with two hands. And, and you can imagine, without any protection on the head, one blow from that broadsword, I mean, would split your skull wide open. It would put you out of business. So, that made it essential to have some protection on their head. And that's what Paul is talking about. Now, there are three things about the helmet that he mentions here that I want you to notice. First of all, I want to consider the mistakes that are involved in this, the mistakes that are involved. In other words, the misconceptions of the false teachings pertaining to this, and there are two that's noteworthy. Number one, there are those who teach that this speaks about the acceptance of salvation. In other words, when you put on the helmet of salvation, that you are actually accepting salvation, that you're being born again. They claim, writers claim, preachers claim, that that's what this has reference to. But let me tell you, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. You, you see, Paul is writing to believers. Unsaved people are not involved in this warfare that we're in. So, it, it certainly couldn't have anything to do with that and... You know, besides that, when you think of salvation in the sense of justification, you know, that's not something that you put on and that you take off. In other words, justification is a one-time act whereby we're justified in the sight of God. So you don't have it on today and take it off tomorrow, you see. There is never a minute when the child of God is unprotected from that which justification spares us. You with me? I mean, every minute of every day, if you've been justified, if you've been saved, every minute of every day, hey, everything's all right. Because that's not going to change. It'll never change. So this couldn't have to do with the acceptance of salvation. But somebody else comes along and they say, no, it doesn't have anything to do with the acceptance of salvation. It has to do with the assurance of salvation. And they believe that a person can be saved and not know it. Well, if you could be saved and not know it, you could lose it and never miss it. I mean, that's the way it seems to me. And so they believe you can be saved and not know it, and they claim that it is common for Christians to be plagued with doubts about their salvation. That just, you know, listen, that is a common teaching today among Protestants. Oh, you know, don't worry about it. You know, somebody say, well, you know, I don't think I'm saved. And and they say, well, look, don't worry about it. Don't you remember a time and a place where you walked down the aisle and you said a prayer? And, uh, oh, yeah, well, I remember that. But, but you know, I'm still, I'm just not sure that I'm saved. I remember years ago preaching in a certain place, and I'll not mention the town or anything. You'd know the preacher. But every year I would go there for a revival meeting. 
And every year, this certain woman, one of the, you know, the real faithful women in the church, every year she would respond to the invitation and she would say, I don't know that I'm saved. I, I, every year. And uh, every year the preacher would assure her that, oh, well, I, I still remember the day you trusted Christ as your Savior. I, you know, I learned a long time ago, don't try to talk somebody into their salvation. If they don't know they're saved, there's a real good chance they're not saved. And so these people have the idea that, that what you need in order to be prepared against the enemy is the assurance of your salvation. But there's no scriptural basis for that whatsoever. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you could never have any kind of doubt, by the way. Like I said, you could fall off a horse, hit your head on a rock. You might not know your name, let alone whether you're a child of God, because you're not thinking straight. So it's possible for any of us to be overwhelmed emotionally or to have maybe some physiological problem or whatever it is. You can have a brain tumor or whatever and not be thinking straight. But for any child of God that's in the will of God, that knows anything about the Bible, they have the assurance of their salvation. In fact, my Bible says the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. And I worry about those folks that, you know, have got to think so, hope so, maybe, kind of salvation. So, I think we can dismiss those things and label them as mistakes. So, that being the case, then what in the world does this mean? So, let's think about the meaning of it rather than the mistakes about it. Now, if we're going to discover the meaning of it, the first thing that we've got to do is to compare Scripture with Scripture. You, you, you know, we read a lot of books about the Bible, and I, listen, I'm not opposed to that. Over the years, I've had some preacher friends, you know, and their attitude was uh, kind of like this, you know. Like one fellow said to a college graduate, a young preacher, he said, the Lord ain't got no, no need of your book learning. And the fellow looked at him and said, yeah, and he doesn't have any more, you know, need for your lack of knowledge, you know. And, but a lot of people got the idea. Listen, I know places in, in America where they look down on the preacher if he's got an education. Really? I mean, if he's gone to college or gone to seminary or whatever, they look down on him. They, you know, they've got this, this weird idea that if God called you to preach, you know, you just get up and start preaching and God fills your mind and fills your mouth. And I've heard some of that kind of preaching. I never did enjoy it too much. And a lot of it is in air. Now, if we're going to understand the Bible, realize this, that the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. When we compare Scripture with Scripture, we know that we're getting the right answer. Now, with that in mind, look at 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. And we're going to discover what Paul means by the helmet of salvation by looking at this verse. Chapter 1 and verse number 10. He says here, speaking about God who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that He will yet deliver us. 
I want you to notice that he speaks about salvation in three tenses. And, and by the way, this is not the only place in the Bible that does that. But notice each one of those phrases. First of all, he said, God delivered us. That's the past tense. In other words, we have been saved. That's what God has already done. That is our justification. But then notice he says, and he doth deliver. By the way, in case some of you don't realize it, that word salvation is a word that means deliverance. And notice he says, he doth deliver. So this is in the present tense, and it talks about the fact that we are being saved, and that has to do with our sanctification. But notice the third one he mentions here. Not only did he deliver us, not only doth he deliver us, but notice he will yet deliver us. Now, that's in the future tense, that's talking about the fact that we will be saved. That has to do with our glorification. Our text, when Paul speaks about the helmet of salvation, I believe that he's speaking here about salvation in the future tense. That is our glorification. That is our final deliverance. Because there's several verses that speak about that, but there's one in particular that is associated with this verse. In fact, Paul uses some of the same terminology that gives us a lot of insight as to exactly what Paul means. This verse is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse number 8. And here's what he says. But let us who are of the day, that would be Christians, right? Let us be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. Now get this. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So whenever we look at that, it's obvious the hope of salvation, that has to do with something that is yet in the future. That has to do with our glorification. And because of the same terms, same words here, I think it goes without saying that this is exactly what Paul is talking about, that the helmet of salvation has to do with our hope that is our that final day of complete, total, final deliverance where we'll be glorified and transformed into the likeness of Christ. So there are three things, three things here that we need to take note of. That which is protected, what? The head. It's the head that's protected. And then that which is provided, what's provided for the head? Hope. So you got that which is protected, the head, that which is provided, the hope, and that which is pictured in salvation, which is our future deliverance. So that's what Paul means. Now, that brings us down to the third thing tonight that I want you to think about. We see the misconceptions about it, and hopefully we understand the meaning of it. But here's where I want us to spend most of our time. I want us to think about the ministry of the helmet of salvation. In other words, what does it do? How does it help us? How does it relate to our present situation? Well, what is our present situation? What is the context in which Paul writes this? One word. Warfare. Right? Isn't that what he's talking about here in all of these verses? 
And when he speaks about our armor, the Christian's armor, the armor of God, that has to do with warfare. We know that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is full of conflict. We are at war. So what he's telling us is that the helmet of salvation protects our head during a time of war. Well, our head has to do with that part of our body where our thinking takes place. Listen, and if our thinking's not straight in a, in a time of warfare, we're in big trouble. If anything requires clear thinking, it's, it's, you know, it's warfare because you, listen, no soldier can just base all of their attitude and their actions on assumptions and theories or maybe an idea proposed by somebody else. He has to look at the facts as they are and then conduct himself accordingly. Not only that, but the soldier has to consider the big picture. You can't just look at one little battle that's taking place over here and make judgments pertaining to the whole warfare. You see what I'm saying? In other words, you can't look at one little isolated case because you might reach the conclusion, we don't stand a chance. You know, they just took that hill. We lost that battle. We're, we're doomed. So a soldier has to look at the big picture. There are reinforcements coming or whatever. Well, this is never more true than when we think about our Christian life. If you just isolate one little event in your life, you might think of yourself as being an absolute total loser. And that's why I keep on saying don't ever judge anybody by one isolated event in their life. It's something, you know, that happened and it's out of character for them. Don't judge the entirety of their life on that one little you know, stumble that they made in life. So, when the soldier is looking and thinking and conducting himself in a manner that will lead to victory, he's got to look at the whole scope of things. He's got to remember the cause for which he is fighting. He's got to remember what the end result of the victory is going to be because these are the things that's going to motivate him to keep going. Now, with that in mind, I want you to consider how the helmet of salvation then ministers to us. I said it protects our thinking, but it protects our thinking in three areas. Now, probably a lot of other things that, that, that could be said, but these are the three things that I want to briefly mention tonight. This is why we need the helmet of salvation. Number one, it protects us against deception. I don't need to tell you we live in a very confusing world. I mean, even our world leaders are baffled. Uh, those men and women who, who supposedly, you know, know what to do during the time of crisis, those that have been trained and educated and prepared and groomed for years and years for the position that they hold in government, we look to them with confidence that some way or another they're going to come up with the answer to the problems that we face, but... It always ends up with more questions. I don't need to tell you, it really gets discouraging, doesn't it? I can remember years and years and years ago, you know, I've got a peace treaty in the Middle East, and we've had the New Deal and the, this deal and that deal and everything under the sun, and nothing has worked. H.G. Wells, who in a, in a manner of speaking was actually a brilliant man, he was described by one writer as a man who, and I quote, 
who hailed science as a panacea for all ills and the goddess of knowledge and power. So this was his outlook on life. At the close of World War II, H.G. Wells wrote these words. He said, Quite apart from any bodily depression, the spectacle of evil in the world, the wanton destruction of homes, the ruthless hounding of decent folk into exile, the bombing of open cities, the cold-blooded massacres and mutilations of children and defenseless gentle folk, the rapes and filthy humiliations, and above all, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world from which that such things had seemed well nigh banished. All these have come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Now, that's a troubled soul writing those words. And the disappointment and the despair that comes from depending upon what man tries to do instead of rather what God can accomplish was revealed in the title of his last book. Here's the title of the last thing he wrote. It's mind at the end of its tether. That says it all. In other words, he's come to the end of his rope, so to speak. He is a man who is depressed and frustrated and just absolutely uh, admits that he's been deceived by it all. Now, there, there was another man by the name of George Bernard Shaw, another man who in his own right was a very brilliant playwright, and uh, here's, a, here's a guy that made a name for himself that continues on even today. In his last writing, this is what he said. I want you to listen carefully. He said, The science to which I pinned my faith is bankrupt. Its counsels, which should have established the millennium, led instead directly to the suicide of Europe. I believed them once. In their name, I helped destroy the faith of millions of worshipers in the temples of a thousand creeds. And now they look at me and witness the great tragedy of an atheist who has lost his faith. There you have it, another example of what H.G. Wells was saying that that man has not been able to provide the solution we need for the problems that we face. And listen, you could add to their testimonies that of literally thousands of people that have lived that come to this conclusion that man has nothing to offer that can protect our mind and accomplish our goals. So, regardless of how hard we try... Regardless of, you know, the, the, the effort that we put into it, eventually we come to the end of ourselves and the problems are still there. And here we are still in a world that is complex, it's corrupt, it's confusing, and we're left what in, wondering what in the world are we going to do, and our leaders don't have the answer. You see, Satan knows that if he can deceive us, distract us, discourage us, then he can defeat us. And he is a master at deception. And about the time we think, you know, we've got all of the answers, he does something to muddy up the water again. That's why that we need the helmet of salvation. That is the hope of eternal life. 
That, now think about what all that implies, and I'll get to that more in a minute. But when you think about the entirety of that, our hope of salvation, that involves more than just making it to heaven with the skin of your teeth. You know, it has to do with, you know, being a joint heir with Jesus Christ, being transformed into the likeness of Christ. It has to do with eventually the curse being removed from the earth. In other words, it has to do with all of those things that God's going to do eventually when He writes all of the wrongs in the world. And so all of that's involved in this. And we're talking about the area of our thinking. That's what we need to be thinking about or if, we're, if we don't, we're going to be deceived into thinking that in order to solve our problems, we've got to look to these super-duper leaders today and find the solution. So it protects us from deception. Secondly, it, it, it protects us from distraction. You know, we think a lot about Satan's ability to deceive us, but we don't think very much about his ability to distract us. And he's an expert when it comes to diverting our attention away from the main thing. And he knows that if he can get us off on a tangent, then he can keep us from our goal. And what he does sometimes is to use even good things. You see, like somebody said many, many years ago, the greatest enemy of that which is best is not the worst, it's that which is good. And if Satan can get me occupied with things that are in and of themselves, they're good, nothing necessarily sinful about them. If he can get me so occupied in that that I neglect that which is the best, then he is one of victory. And that's why I say that sometimes sinless things can become sinful. Because we let those so-called good things crowd the best things out of our life. And we could all make a long list of things. We could talk about the, you know, the Girl Scouts and the Brownies and the Cub Scouts and the Boy Scouts and, uh, you know, Little League this and Little League that and all of these other things. And not anything wrong with any of that if we keep it in its proper place. But if we're not careful, after a while, Satan has manipulated things to where he has us distracted from what is most important in life. And our only protection is the helmet of salvation. That's the thing that gives us hope for the future. You say, well, I don't understand how that works. Okay, think about it this way. Whenever we have the helmet of salvation on, when we're thinking straight, as it were, then we know that in spite of all of the difficulties of life and so forth, we know that God is working out His purposes. And if we know that, we're not surprised by it or discouraged by it whenever our plans fail. Are you with me? Believe me, listen, there are some folks whenever, let's say we're having a, a presidential election, and if the election doesn't go their way, they're in a state of depression for <laughs> four years, some of them. I mean, they just can't get over that and just can't get beyond that. And, you know, that's just one example. They, they see us putting forth our best effort. We worked hard. We prayed about it. We fought hard. We did everything we can. Didn't work out. You know, well, this is important, this is scary, and this involves the future of our country, you know, and it involves the future of our children, and on and on and on. And listen, all of those things are true, but 
When we begin to understand that the same God that saved us and that is saving us is yet to save us and to deliver us, He's working out His eternal purpose. Remember, we talked about that in the very beginning of this study in Ephesians. God has an eternal purpose. Purpose that one day every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means a lot of things has to change in this world. And believe you me, God is at work changing things, whether we realize it or not. Let me read just, a, it's actually quite a long quote, and I normally don't like to do this, but uh, a man by the name of Ray Stedman, he's been dead several years now, but Ray Stedman, uh, he was a Bible teacher out on the West Coast and uh, wrote some excellent material and uh, had a rather fruitful ministry and had a large, large following. But Ray Stedman wrote some words that I copied down. I wanted to remember this and I want because it relates to our study tonight and Let me just read what he wrote several years ago. He said, The Christian has learned to expect wars and rumors of wars unto the very end. He expects false teachings and false philosophies and cults and heresies to abound. He is told all of this will happen. He is part of the program, part of the total overall plan and purpose and moving of God in history. The Christian knows that wars are unavoidable, even though every effort should be made to avoid them, and that there is no contradiction in this. He knows also that we are living in a mad world, a world which is deluded by the silken, subtle, satanic lies which are deliberately designed to end up in the mangling and mutilating of the bodies and souls of men. Therefore, when he sees these things happening, he knows, now listen carefully, he knows that it is unrealistic to expect to stop all of this by passing certain legislation or declaring certain principles or sitting down to negotiate at a peace table. The world is in such a state and condition that the Christian knows that the innocent and the weak will suffer and nothing much can be done about it at times. The blame lies squarely on the stubborn refusal of men everywhere to believe the true nature of the problem and the remedy that God's love has fully provided. The Christian knows that demonic forces can rise and possess the world from time to time and will do so, and every human scheme to control these will ultimately fail. Now, whenever you first read that, maybe maybe you're thinking that he's saying that what we need to do is isolate ourselves like a monk in a monastery, and since we can't change the world, let's not even try. But that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that we shouldn't ever put forth our, our best foot forward. He's not saying we should never make any, any effort. He's simply warning us about becoming so preoccupied with these things that admittedly that we can't change, that we start neglecting the things that we should be doing, like winning our next door neighbor to Christ. That's the point he's trying to make. And he explains that in these next few words. Here he says, 
The helmet of hope not only tells us that these things are happening and will happen, but that a certain sure salvation is coming and that it's even now at work. This is what we need to know. Not merely that it will finally end right, but that the ending is being worked out now. History is not a meaningless jumble, but a control pattern. And the Lord Jesus Christ is Himself the one who is directing these events. He's the Lord of history. God is at work in the self-same events that we look at with such horror and confusion. I don't like the subject matter of that, but i got to tell you, I like his outlook on that. I really do when you think about it, because it can get so depressing at times when we think about the condition of the world. And I think we've all done it. We've thought about the condition of the world in the context of the welfare of our children. And some of us thought about our grandchildren and think, oh, God, we've got to do something because... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe some folks don't realize how bad it can get and how quick it can get there. Boy, it can get so bad so quick that it's frightening. And uh, if we're not careful, and by the way, there are some preachers who have decided that instead of being involved in the ministry of a church, They've given that up and they've launched out into a ministry of trying to save America. I love America as much as anyone. I hate communism as much as anyone. But I have no right to spend my life in the pursuit of fighting in regards to those things. I have Listen, I have a God-given agenda right here in the Bible. And as a Christian, so do you. And I need the helmet of salvation on. That is, I need to be thinking clearly, lest I have my attention diverted and I am distracted. Remember what Paul said to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 in verse number 4, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Don't let yourself get so wrapped up. You know, we talk about, oh, God's in control. Our, our God reigns. He's running the show. You know, we talk about that, and then all of a sudden the election doesn't go our way, and we, we mope around like God must have taken a holiday, that God must have succumbed to a blow from the devil, and that He's not in control anymore. But He is. You see, God allows a lot of things to happen that He really doesn't want to happen, but He lets it happen. I talked a little bit about that this morning. God lets it happen. Sure He does. And He's got a reason. And we need to keep that in mind. Now, there's one other thing that I want to mention. Not only does the helmet of salvation protect us against deception and distractions, it protects us against discouragement. And, you know, it's kind of like you've read the little little story about, you know, the, the devil's workshop and 
And, uh, you know, that one tool over there that was priced so much higher than all of the rest, and someone inquired, why is that tool, you know, so much higher than the others? Well, it, it's because Satan knows that if he can get us discouraged, he can absolutely defeat us. And, and maybe he uses this more than any others. Now, think about warfare. And when you do, you can't think about warfare without thinking about hardships and struggle and things that lead to, to weariness, to exhaustion. And I want to tell you, when any of us get so worn down by the heat of the battle and we get so exhausted that all of a sudden we're not even thinking straight, and that, that's why we've got to be careful about saying, well, I'll tell you what, I, I'll never do that. Did you see what they did? I'd never do something like that. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If it happened to them, it can happen to you. And if Satan can get you discouraged, he's got you right where he wants you. And you see, these problems in life stretches us to our limit, and sometimes we just feel like giving up. And listen, that's life. And Satan knows if I can discourage them, I can defeat them. And that's why he's constantly trying to magnify our problems, make everything appear to be bigger and worse than what it really is. And he wants to overwhelm us mentally so that we'll just give up hope. Now remember... What Paul said there to the Thessalonians about this, he called, he called it the hope of our salvation. It's, in other words, it's what we look forward to, what we anticipate, what we think about in regards to the final, full, complete deliverance that's coming. And here's what happens. I'm going to try to wrap it all up in a few words. The helmet of salvation gives us hope. And I made me a little list, and maybe you could make one that includes some things that, that would be dear to you. But it gives us hope. Number one, our labor's not in vain. Payday's coming someday. I, I, you know, a lot of times we get to think, well, nobody appreciates what I do. You know, I just blah, blah, blah. And we get to feeling sorry for ourselves. We don't see any result of what we're doing. And we get to thinking, well, nobody would care if I just quit and it's not doing any good anyway, so I think I will. Listen, your labor is not in vain. Not only that, our trials have meaning and purpose. Nothing ever happens to a child of God that God cannot use in some way for our own good. So whatever it is that I'm facing in my life, if I'm doing my best to do the will of God and something bad, something painful, something unpleasant happens, I have the assurance of God's Word that God's going to do something good from that. Now, now, listen the good that he does might not appear to me as to be a personal benefit. But who said it was supposed to be? It's not all about you. It's not all about me. What difference does it make if the good is a personal benefit to you or a help to somebody else? Are you following me? We think about the good that was accomplished at the cross. Well, it wasn't good for Jesus. He's the one that suffered. But the good that came out of it was the salvation provided for us. And the more that I focus on this hope of salvation, the more I realize all of my trials have meaning. My labor's not in vain. I also realize that our troubles eventually come to an end. 
It's not going to last forever. As Lincoln said, this too shall pass. Not only that, but I have the assurance that good will triumph over evil. I have the assurance that the devil will finally, fully, forever be defeated. I have the hope that King Jesus someday will rule and reign and that we will reign with Him. I have the hope that the best is yet to come. Regardless of how good it is now, it's going to get better later. And you see, this hope comes from looking at the future as it's described in the Word of God. And listen, that alone enables us to view life from the proper perspective. And this is so very important because a lot of people have a warped perspective on life. They've got a, uh, their their worldview is all askew as a result of the fact they're not basing it on what the Bible teaches. But when I've got the helmet of salvation on, all of a sudden I begin to realize the battle is not ours, it's the Lord. I begin to realize we're not fighting for the victory, we're fighting from the victory that was already won on Calvary. We have that assurance. We have the assurance that the outcome is sure. Now, unless we build our worldview on this foundation, we're going to get... Let me put it in the words of Paul, the writer in Hebrews chapter 12, where he tells us that we're to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that we're to consider Him. And then he made this statement, "...lest ye grow, be wearied and faint in your mind." You see, that's exactly what we're talking about. Our mind, our head, our area of thinking. What's going to keep us from getting weary, as it were, and feigning? It's having the proper worldview. And unless your worldview takes into consideration that future hope of salvation, then it's, then it's incomplete. And that's one of the main reasons for the confusion and the coldness in our churches today. And that's the failure of us to put enough emphasis on the hope of our Lord's return. And I said what I did after the song earlier for this very reason. I remember a time, and many of you do, where years ago it was a very common thing for preachers to preach about the second coming, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, there were some fellows that had entire ministries based on that. They had radio broadcasts that had only to do with prophecy. And they would go preach, and that's all they would preach about. It seemed like it was on everybody's mind. And then sometimes I just scratch my head and wonder, why don't we hear that anymore? Do you ever think about that? Go, go to revival meetings. Well, you don't hardly have revival meetings anymore. Go, go, you know, whatever kind of religious meeting. You don't hardly ever hear any preacher get up and talk about that blessed hope and the soon appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I just want you to understand that if we're going to regain our spiritual equilibrium, if we're going to stay strong and stay in the battle, and if we're going to stand against the evil and stay in the fight and so forth, we've got to get our focus back on that. That's, that's what the Bible describes as the blessed hope. It's real. I know, I know it sounds like fiction. I know it's something that our mind can't even comprehend. That in the moment of the twinkling of eye, all of a sudden, the trumpet's going to sound and the dead in Christ are going to rise first and we which are alive and remain shall be called up together and we're going to meet them in the, in the air and we're going to meet the Lord. Think about that. 
Somebody said to the preacher when he got through preaching about heaven, he said, that just sounds too good to be true. And the preacher's answer was, no, it sounds so good it must be true. That's the way it is with the coming of the Lord. I remember I remember us preachers, especially during a revival meeting, and usually we waited until the last night and we preached a message on prophecy. Boy, we would really bear down on that statement the Lord made that He'll come in an hour when you least expect it. I, he could come tonight. I mean, before the benediction, all of a sudden He could come and all of the Christians would be snatched out of here and be nobody but unsaved people left here. Be two in the bed and one taken and one left and two in the field and one taken and the other one be left. And and I can remember how it impacted people back then. And I, I got to wonder why it is that it that we're not impacted in that same way. Have we got to the place that we really don't believe He could come at any minute? Remember, remember this, and I'll be through. Jesus said, I'm going to come in an hour when you least expect it. Well, I don't think the unbelievers have ever expected it, have they? They mock the teaching of the return of Jesus Christ. They've never expected it. I think the point of it is, is that we believers have stopped expecting it. And I think that gives us all the more reason we better start expecting it. Because we are in such a cold, dead, lifeless state that there's... Well, you know what I mean. But boy, if we really, really, really believe that Jesus might come tonight before the Super Bowl ended, (laughs) what would we do? Before we put our head on the pillow tonight or before we got up in the morning, if Jesus was to come and we'd be called up to meet the Lord in the air, would it make any difference in our attitude one toward another? Would it make any difference in our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I believe that it would, and the Bible's never changed. It's just as true today as it was back then. And I say with John the Apostle, even so come Lord Jesus, let that be our prayer. Let's stand together. Father, how we thank You tonight that not only have You already saved us, and that we'll never ever be anything but a child of God again. That is final and complete. It's over and it's done with. But I'm thankful that You are in the process of saving us, delivering us from ourselves, delivering us from this present evil world and doing a work of changing us daily. But Lord, I I thank You beyond what words can describe for that blessed hope, that, that final full deliverance that is yet to come when all of Your children will be gathered around Your throne eternal. And there for the first time we'll look into the face of our dear Savior. We'll look upon those nail-scarred hands and we'll be overwhelmed 
by the price that He paid for us. Let us live in the light of that reality every single day. And as Jesus Himself said about our attitude toward work, let us remember that the night comes when no man can work and the door of opportunity will be shut. So may we take advantage of it while it is yet day. May we not give up the fight and succumb to the enemy, but help us to stand strong and true as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. For we pray in His name. What are we going to sing, brother? Age no-